0: You know usually there's a lot of chefs in the same room and they're all so passionate about the same thing and and especially just you know picking apart those dishes picking apart those ingredients and when they meet the 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 farmer that's actually provided the product that's put on that plate it's you know they're usually very intrigued
1: This is the crackling I'm Anthony Huckstep. Born into a family with a rich, multi-generation farming background, Vaughan Schultz grew up in the most fascinating surrounds. When he became an adult, he left to embrace city living. But when it came time to start his own family, the past pulled him back to the family farm, where he now produces some of the most extraordinary pork in Australia. Vaughan, the Schultz family farm, has been operating since the 1800s. What's it like being a farmer with such a rich history?
0: Oh, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, a bit of an obligation <laughs> it, it, uh, is, uh, you know, um, a big part of it. I, um, like you said, yeah, our family, they came here as part of the late 1800s immigration from Prussia, um, where, we, where we are north of Toowoomba. was very similar to Barossa, and in that era, they, um, you know, the families emigrated uh all 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 at sort of once and my 1894 was when my great-grandfather settled on this particular property and um yeah they they came with the knowledge of of uh milk and dairy and and pigs and um you know the first that first generation the first thing they did was uh clear ground to to raise crops and and um and make um you know make a space for the dairy and um started milking and they would um um, process their way through pigs and send the, um, send the cream through to the butter factories and the cheese factories. Um, and then, yeah, put the, put the pork on the train and send it through to Darling Downs. Um, my great grandfather is actually one of sort of the founding members of the Darling Downs Bacon Co-op, which started up, um, in the early 1900s. Um, and it was a, a farmers collective where they, um, all chipped in and created a little bacon factory in Toowoomba there and they'd ship the, chip the um, uh, the, the baconers on the on the train through to be processed there and then onto the onto the uh, Brisbane market for to be consumed in brisbane
1: do you have any yarns that have been passed over uh, generations from the family of the experiences of uh, farming
0: oh look yeah every generation did it differently mm. look um, some of the things my great-grandfather did were absolutely amazing because I mean pigs are only one part of of what we do like I said they did dairying and it's not un- it's not an uncommon story for families in this region a lot of a lot of the original old dairies had also, um, piggeries associated with it. So to process the, um, process the excess dairy, uh, ways and things like that. And also where, where we are is on the cusp of the Darling Downs, which is one of the most amazing grain growing regions on earth. And, um, the, the bounties of the wheat and barley fields and things like that, it's really, and the temperature as well, it, it really lends itself to, um, you know, to, to, to actually growing pigs. So, um, yeah, all those things combined and, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of, I guess a bit of tradition that they brought over. And so, yeah, the early guys sort of did, they did it very rustically. That's for sure. They didn't have, um, electricity or, and even engines at the start. And, um, you know, and, and they just, where we are is, is, is a forest, um, sort of a, a little bit of an old growth forest. They only cleared about, I don't know, 30% of, of, of the property. And yeah, in that forest, we would run pigs and, um, and, um, Yeah, used to harvest the timbers and, and, um, yeah, basically sort of was a multi purpose, sort of multi use farm. And then the second generation, my great grandfather, then they they electrified and, and they, he continued doing dairying, um, and, you know, right through to the sort of, sort of the 80s. Um, then, um, yeah, in the 80s, there was a bit of deregulation industry and, um, my family went out of, out of doing commercial fresh milks, but, um yeah then then what preceded that was um sort of one of the worst um droughts sort of in living memory the sort of the late 80s through the 90s the whole eastern seaboard sort of even particularly this region was destocked and um there was multiple years of drought where you know basically there was nothing to be nothing to be done and I guess that's sort of where my story started and I was born in 79 so growing up in the 80s always knew I'd, I'd come out to the farm and, um, like that by then they'd finished their commercial, um, um, milking, but, um, and it, you know, it wasn't great seasons, but I spent many a year with dad mucking around, fixing up fences and, um, clearing out brush and, you know, getting things ready and doing up the old homestead and things like that. And, um, so that's sort of, yeah, my, we, we definitely had a lot of early memories sort of being taken at the farm while my great, my, my grandparents were here and, um, and dad would start doing sort of more, more, serious work with the farming. And then, yeah, uh, at that time, um, it was, yeah, like I said, a bad time for the, you know, the weather-wise. So everyone was sort of encouraged to have a off-farm job, off-farm trade, and, um, you know, Dad was working off-farm but still pottering around, doing things, getting things ready. And, um, yeah, I started, I, I, you know, I went to school and I was encouraged to do something off-farm, and I, um, I was into um, uh, technical drawing, and at that time, it was sort of a, you know, fledgling part of the you know, of the industry with computers just sort of just sort of happening. And I enjoyed that, so I, went, I was encouraged to go to university. And I went to, I enjoyed and went to um, studied architecture.
1: What are your fondest memories of growing up on the farm?
0: Oh, wow. Well, look, animals, I guess. Like there's so many quirky stories with animals um you know growing up you'd always we were always mucking around with cows we're always mucking around with pigs they always break in the wrong paddock they're always doing rascally things you know what i mean like um you're always helping them birth you're always helping them die you're always you know just it's sort of a big part of of you know animal husband husbandry sort of takes a, a big part of of your attention when you're sort of when you're working with animals and um, especially when it's your own, you know, if you're an employee, I guess it's different. But, um, for us, we sort of live at 24-7. Um, where, where we live is sort of, as, you know, within 200 meters of the piggery and with, within 100 meters of where the, the cattle birthing yards are. And, um, it's not uncommon for it to pop up at 2 a.m. because of some sort of sound that you, you know, you hear or something like that. You're sort of very, very conscious and you care a lot about, um, you know, what your animals are doing.
1: When was the moment that you realized that, uh, you wanted to work on the farm and be in the family business a- away from architecture?
0: Um, I guess that was probably the time I met my beautiful wife, you know, like at the time I was we were living the cosmopolitan lifestyle. I was working in Brisbane city, living on the 14th floor of Charlotte and Albert and, um, you know, eating out every night and, and um, cause it was cheaper than actually buying groceries and just, you know, just. Doing everything, doing everything a double income, no kids want to, still so want to do. But, um, yeah, ultimately, uh, when it came, you know, when I met the right woman and, and we decided that we wanted to choose to have children, um, I knew that wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to expose my children to. I, I grew up, um, you know, in a place where nature was all encompassing, not, not like the built environments where, you know, nature is permitted. And I think it makes a big difference on, the attitudes of people um so i always did want to raise my children in you know a natural environment i also like i said had the, in the back of my head the obligation that as the eldest son i would have to one day you know come back to the family farm and make sure i understood how it worked and how things worked and and um you know and that that i guess yeah like i said t- coincided with meeting the correct woman and being at that phase in life so that's what we did i i we organized a transfer <clears throat> i um Moved up to Toowoomba mm-hmm. and started working out of their regional office there, and, I, and that was quite close to where the homestead was. So I, would, um, I had the liberty of driving driving in and working in town, but then also coming out to the farm. And the first thing we did was set up a little homestead. The the, the original homestead that we are actually living in was built in the 1900s, but over the years um, mm-hmm. decayed a little bit, and you know it's sort of been an ongoing project for me and my father over the years. And, and ultimately, we often had tenants in it, and it just coincided that with the tenant, um, the long-term tenant that left coincided with when we were thinking about doing this. And so we came back out, and um, first thing we did was, yeah, mucked around with the house, renovated, made it livable. And then second thing I, we did was, you know, got the gardens working, chickens. I want uh, my kids to experience all the things I did growing up. So, you know, having, having and raising your own chickens, eating your own eggs, and also having your own house cow, um, you know, um, that, having a house cow that you uh, milk that you know you get fresh raw milk daily on tap um you know something I experienced growing up and I wanted my children to experience so yeah we just basically are motivated just to do the homesteady thing to be honest we sort of came up and we wanted to live as independently and off-grid sort of lifestyle and both and I have sort of very good or green attitudes if you know what I mean without you know harping on about it but um, yeah we just we just wanted to live as simply as possible um and um and, and raise our kids in that environment and then then came along my yeah my introduction to the food service industry but so pigs like pigs are always uh, a small part but a part of what we did we'd always have um you know a few far- we were traditionally a farrowing operation so we would have a few girls that we we would um and a bore and we would um Breed the pigs, and then we'd have a couple for ourselves that we'd raise for a bit of pork. and The ones that we didn't, we sold to the typical commercial market, just like most people do out here, sort of thing. Um, but and and that's what we were doing, but then, um, yeah, then then came my my, I guess, introduction to the food service industry when I, I met Benny Williamson.
1: Tell us about what impact that introduction had,
0: yeah. Well, it was, um, a bit of a story. I mean, I guess. At the time, I, it was a bit of a chance meeting um, through a friend of a friend. I think Benny just come to town. We're about the same age. We've got kids about the same age, and and he was, you know, going to be the chef in this in this restaurant that was being opened called Gerard's. And um, yeah, just happened to meet him, and we just clicked straight away. Had very similar attitudes about. You know, um, just the classic things like uh, when when you're homesteading, the, the taste of your own tomatoes compared to commercial ones, the taste of your own eggs compared to commercial ones, you know. And um, yeah. you know, and, and it was, I was actually amazed that someone also, you know, shared that real passion about direct to the source ingredients and stuff, and we really sort of clicked. And and um, yeah, the, the thing they were doing there at Gerard's was sort of a really avant-garde sort of Um, Moroccan, southern Spanish sort of feel, uh, modern vibe with a lovely little courtyard. And, um, yeah, he was, he'd had experience working with, uh, small piglets before and it was something that we did, we did regularly. So we clicked on that straight away and I said, Oh, well, come up and have a look. And, and, um, yeah, he sort of, I guess it became, it started and we had a formed a relationship. I guess it's ongoing to this day. You know, he introduced me to, the food service industry up till then, I was basically a culinary barbarian. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't know much. I, I've, I, you know, I toured, toured Italy, but I've, I basically the only thing I ate was pizza margarita. Um, but yeah, I, 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 um, I have a, certainly have, you know, educated opinion about how that should taste, but that's about all up until I met, you know, someone like Benning. Um, yeah and so we bounced off each other you know totally like he introduced me to you know to um, uh, Renee Redzepi at the time I don't know if you know the the Swedish Swedish chef he was at the time he was doing like a forage thing and um, yeah because we're in the middle of nature doing all this other stuff we've got you know the forage capability are awesome here let alone what we actually produce so Benny would come up with his uh, with his new chefs and still does regularly, you know, regularly brings brings and buds um, his team of chefs and comes up and they do like a little red zeppie sort of experience and they, they forage around for, for different things. At various times of the year, we've got all sorts of just introduced or native forage greens that are available like amaranths and, you know, purslanes and warrigal greens and plantains and things like that. Um, you know, uh, stinging nettle, stinging nettle, and pepperina—that's always a laugh. They somehow always, always convince a, a junior chef to accidentally uh, mishandle those things, and um, yeah, they come up and you know they they do a little Red Zippy tour, and then convince some you know the junior to drive them all home with a full belly and a full heart. It's sort of, it's uh, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's really really cool.
1: What sort of uh, impact did these connections start having on on the the pork production? And the farming
0: well uh yeah all straight away we had to you know like we had an old facility we've been doing it for years but like um it's in the middle of a forest and anything that man can make and sits there for a little while will be taken back by nature so we had to basically just we, we just renovated our facilities um had to resupply the water lines and basically increased sort of our capabilities to meet his demand and then um yeah you know we we well, we did all sorts of wacky things in, in that time. Like the, the main thing that he, you know, we were doing was the the small pig with suckling pig, which is which is sort of a you know it's a bit of avant garde dish to actually try to source in this region. He he loved the idea that you know, he had his own personal farmer and and we were producing it just for specifically tailored for him and just for him. But we experimented with all sorts of wacky things. Like um, for for a time there, we were going to make the Australia's next Hamon. So we um, we we went through and tried to collect different breeds. He he had me searching for we we got Berkshire's and Wessexers and Hampshire's, and he had me searching for Patanero, which I didn't know at the time, which is the Iberian blackfoot. Which it took me to to embarrass myself to a couple of uh, high-end stud um, people that they, it's not even in Australia, it never has been. <laughs> and, uh, but you know, we we sort of experimented with the different breeds, and then we. Um, lined them up with different diets. Uh, where you know, I, I made a pasture field specifically for for them so that we could do a side by side comparison with the, the free range, with the prepared pasture, and then uh, with with various breeds. And then also, um, then you know, I, I sourced about a couple of ton of uh, macadamia meal, which where we are is a byproduct of the macadamia industry, which is quite close, and and it's a lovely tannin filled sort of um uh, material which also has a major aroma of the macadamias and then we finish them on different percentages and and things like that and in order to try to you know create australia's next on, if you know what i mean or um and uh but see that process like to when you when you actually go and select a select the breed then actually breed them to the growing age that's a year and then he wants them at 100 kilos which is a bit bigger than the traditional industry so that takes you extra time so that's basically another year to processing and then Hamon takes what four, 24 months to sort of cure so it's literally you know a four-year project sort of uh, batch by batch but we yeah we did we did it and enjoyed it and learned and it taught me a lot of different things about um about pigs and we sort of I guess psyched each other up and bounced off each other in that way and and, um, yeah, we, and basically just, yeah, just grew and enjoyed it. And, and, um, like my dad, my dad and, and my wife, uh, and, and my son are basically the only sort of, uh, employees. It's a fa- little family operation, and dad's a bit of the, head of reason um i wanted to get into um you know fully into heirloom breeds but um the commercial industry is and, and markets in general have you have to be very careful about uh where blackhead breeds go and, and depth of fats and things like that to actually stick if you want to stick into commercial markets and a lot of um yeah you know, a lot of people who just say i want to get into pigs and go into things like that are unawares can cause themselves a bit of mischief but so we kept uh, you know at least 70 sort of 60 or 70 percent of our of our stock is commercial commercial whites but, um, but I'm very passionate about just the the idea of preserving the heirloom breeds for starters um, and, and and I'm a bit of a collector in that regard as well and um, so yeah we keep a you know we keep a, a stud line of Burks and Wessex is going and I've also got still a little bit of tan with and we've we sort of do a hybridization so that um, it sort of suits what our environment is and and, um, and you know now we've sort of developed a bit of a um, tailored diet that we seem to we seem to balanced out nicely with production gains versus flavor and and we think we've developed something a little bit unique especially you know when we do side by side taste tests with with the chefs and things
1: can, can you tell us a bit about maybe uh, two of the breeds and how different they are to deal with and, and the end product as well
0: Uh, I guess the main thing's fat. Um, With something like a large black, like a a lot of the, um, they they called them lard breeds back in the old days. So so pigs weren't necessarily always just produced for pork. They would actually have fat breeds and they would use lard for cooking oils, for lining oils and other things like that. Um, But, you know, a lot of that, Fell out of favour when they started using whale and stuff like that, so they just focused on the meat production breeds. So a lot, of, a lot of those heirloom breeds disappeared back from England a long time ago. But yeah, the main, the main one, main difference is the, the fat content. So if you were to put um, a classic commercial white, which is a you know either a land race, Dutch land race, or a, what, a, a English Yorkshire, which is a large white pricked, they um, you put them side by side on the same diet with something like a large black very big difference in fat profile um you you very much have to which is i guess a bit of a benefit for someone who wants to do outdoor heirloom you can actually you actually sort of have to feed them less because uh they can, they can get over fat especially with uh you know with with the with the girls with with the breeders um but yeah you have to be yeah basically you have to be very conscious and tailor the diets to suit so so we found a bit of a you know a bit of a hybridization works very well but um, yeah, no, it's very different between your growers and your, and, and your, um, and your meat producers. But, um, and I guess also ultimately they they take a lot longer. heirloom breeds, um, just don't have that efficiency of conversion. So you're looking at ultimately a longer time to get to the same weight, which is, you know, which is, um, but the diet has to be tailored specifically for that. But it's all, yeah, yeah. Basically there's, that there is, it's very different, you know, and, um, and if the girls lactating, they need more diet, and you, you know, sort of, you sort of tailor it according to what they what they need and want. What we feed the girls is very different to what we feed the growers. Um, traditionally, the industry wasn't necessarily Like you, you might hear pig farmers talk about being farrow to finish operations, um, you know, because both of those things require very different situations, very different facilities, very different diets. And we were always just traditionally a, a farrowing operation. We would produce the babies and then sell them to someone who had Porkhouse or something, or you know, and and they would be a finishing operation, didn't muck around with breeding, and they would just bring them in at um, weaner store aged sort of about a 30 30 kilo live weight, and then just put them in their porkhouse for a couple of months and sell them in bacon. Um, and we've we we've only sort of just recently gotten into doing doing more baconers now. Like we used to do tailored things like like i said with benny and and other charcuterie um makers we we sort of do do tailored things for those guys but um yeah now we, we also do a bit of uh you know a bit of pork in the forest as well as silvio pastoralism is probably a better way to describe it we have a a bit of a um, um I, what we call it hogwarts where they graduate for bacon university and so they uh, they get they get into this different facility where they all you know they hang out in the forest and they have everything they need for a couple of months and then um, yeah one day graduate onto bacon.
1: What sort of impact does that three months have on them?
0: Well, you you I mean you're with them every day so you'd like to think I guess humans anthropomorphise a bit of what makes an animal happy or not but uh, yeah. they a porks uh, a pig is very vocal they let you know when there's when they're not happy that's for sure. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, if you provide them everything they need and every luxury, with in regards to food, water, shelter, somewhere to exhibit their natural behaviors, they are actually a little greedy animal. They don't really try to get away, <laughs> you know, and they, they and they they let you know, you know, they if uh, you know if you're having problems with handling and. And uh and, and things like that, then then it's probably a symptom of something you're not doing. But um especially with, when we start working with milks. Like we give when Jade's in the dairy and we're doing cheeses and things like that, we have excess milks and um when you go up to the uh Feed the Wieners, they start to treat you like a mother in that in that way. And um, you know, I don't know if you've ever had pets like dogs or cats, you know when they when they really want to be fed, they zip in zip in, in front of your legs and try to trip you over and lead you to where they were going. Just imagine doing that with 50, 20 kilo little animals. They all, and, and they, and you have to really. They're so smart. You have to trick them in a different way. You've got to put a little bit there and then zip over and get it so that they don't, you know, <laughs> so they don't stick their faces in the way. And uh, you know, you just, you just got to do something different every day. But yeah, you know, like I said, it surprises you. Surprises you daily what you have to, what you actually have to work with and stuff like that.
1: What's special for you about being out on the farm?
0: I guess yeah, the lifestyle. Uh, like I said, when we you know moved out here and, and and the grace of meeting you know chefs like Ben and then other other profile chefs in the food industry, they've. I guess I don't treat them like customers. I treat them like patrons. You know, um, they they are also passionate about knowing how knowing the roots of the food right back to the source. Um, and you know, we're so close to Brisbane, they can come out and have a look themselves, and they sort of have. Feeling like it's their own personal farm, and and that 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 inspires me as well every day, and um you know, and we get to you know, but through people like that, we we get to live this lifestyle, and we get to try to better every day, and and you know, and every day make make it better for them, and, and create different products, and do different things. So, and they allow me that grace. Um, so I just yeah, I reciprocate by trying to trying to make that. Ultimate product, you know, something that's completely different and and um, you know something that constantly wows them. Hopefully, you know we can we can do all sorts of things on a small scale. Like um, a lot of chefs like to do a lot of nose to tail experience, so we can organise the you know the offal of the whole exact pig that they're actually going to get by you know by 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 virtue of the fact that we have a really good relationship with our small uh, abattoir and. And um you know and and yeah we can actually afford them that luxury so that it gives them you know that that experience so, and it's amazing what some of these chefs come up with when when they when they play with some of those things.
1: it's it's a small family run business what are the challenges with what you do?
0: um weather, I guess is the big thing we you know you work seasonally and you work with weather um we've had a couple of we've had like our main season is winter barley um and we've had you know, Two nice seasons in a row, which heartens you, and everything's working well. But for four years before that, we've had awful drought. Like um, the whole East, anyone in the Eastern seaboard probably would repeat that story to you. But um, it was a very, very dark and hard time for, um, you know, and and when it goes on and on and on, and you have to make welfare decisions and destocking decisions based on economics, and they're having to sell the animals that you love and work with, even though they still got life in them, and then being offered cents for it because everyone else is doing the same thing, and you know. But then there's absolute joy when when the seasons change, and and then fortunes are possible. Anything's possible when you're coming into summer, and 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 the weather's right, and the soil's full of water, and it just lifts the spirits then, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very, it's a very gratifying thing to watch a project go. It's very similar to architecture in that way. I liken it to it. You know, you watch a, you, you develop a project from concept to fruition, right? From, I think I'm going to do this and, and start that project and, and fulfill it over the course of a season or two and then reap it. And it's a, you know, it's a very fulfilling thing to watch and nurture a project, even if it's horticultural, whether it's horticultural or, or, um, or meet, and we, you know, we've dabbled, like when we, um, you know, when we, met, when we started meeting restaurants, um, bar limes, for example, was a big thing that they have trouble getting out of season. And funnily enough, at different times, so, you know, we we experimented by putting in 30 lime trees into a little orchard, and and um, and you know, we we, we still to this day supply um supply um limes down to to our good friends down in Brisbane every now and then, but we worked out about that scale that, um, you know, with, with our water availability and e- economy of, um, you know, the, the needs of plant stuff that it wasn't going to be for us, but we still have maintained that little 30, 30 tree orchard that they, you know, they can, they, they can have, you know, say say once again, it's all product off the same tewa, you know, the same, same single source.
1: Do you have any stories of uh, the times you've experienced your own product in restaurants?
0: Oh, every time's an experience, you know. Like um, when we go down for an event or something. Nowadays, it's it's you know an, an opening or some sort of an event or something. We we yeah, we, it's a real experience for us. We get dressed up. We're going to Brisbane for the for the night or whatever, and. And 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 the chefs are it's a, it's just a, it's you know usually there's a lot of chefs in the same room and they're all so passionate about the same thing and and especially just you know picking apart those dishes picking apart those ingredients and and when they you know when they when they meet the when they meet the 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 farmer that's actually provided the product that's put on that plate it's you know they're usually very intrigued and you know you meet so many yeah so many it, we basically like we we come back with full hearts that's for sure it inspires you to do the next project and go on to the next thing and um yeah it keeps things ticking along. It's it's but um yeah every time, absolutely every time I'm amazed like um I mean with pork, um, you know, if you cook it correctly, the it's really hard to muck up a small pig, um with you know, the protein. But the thing is the crackle. Um and and how they do. Like with a with a younger pig, the crackle's a lot thinner and it becomes uh and there's so many different ways to present it and, and pop it and stuff like that. It really it always amazes me every time what they what did they do with the crackle, you know.
1: Was <laughs> there a dish that stands out uh, from a restaurant that you've experienced of your own product?
0: Oh look, I mean it's if, look if I if I name drop anyone, they'll get I'll offend someone. Huck. <laughs> <laughs> every time, every time, I'm just amazed they are, it's they outdo each other every time. Um, you know, and, and look, I, and I wouldn't be doing them justice to even try to describe the process, but it's amazing how many, like, multi-day and multi-step process that they can, that they actually go through to, to, to produce sometimes what, you know, what they put on the plate. It just, um, but yeah, you know. I look at, like I said, if, if I named anything, I, I would, uh, I'd be doing injustice. But what, I mean, one, one, one that stands out when, when, um, when Benny came up for his last, one of his last red set piece, they, we did, um, an interesting thing where we got a whole, whole small pig and cured it in brine and smoked it like you do, you know, like you do Christmas ham sort of thing. So about the same sort of kilos, but so that makes it pre-cooked. So um, we were able to enjoy the uh, pig on the spit experience um, in like a one in a one-hour turnaround, as opposed to like what's normally a seven-hour cook. And and we got them to put that. um, I know sometimes you see at the at the commercial stores they they can make a a crackle on the um, on the ham. You know that you put it in the oven and the crackle actually pops. So. Um, that that was quite an experience, and and um, you know they they flagellated it with a with a lovely uh herbed oil on on a pepperina branch, and it just yeah really clicked. It it was a it was a really interesting interesting night what they put together that night. Um, but yeah, that's that's one off the top of my head. I guess the other one's opening a Donna Chang, um, you know, Jack uh, Jack uh, Nicholson's um um restaurant he did when they opened that it um he, we worked on a little project with with um with jake i don't know how deep in the weeds you want to go but it was the um you know ultimately a um lactose diet only cycling pig so we processed and they had to be the smallest um you know um smallest pigs would ever processed. they had to be done by hand but they were um so as a pig gets older as a pig gets older it starts to uh, enjoy the carbohydrates that his mum's does as well as the lactose and the enzymes change over and the meat toughens up. But the really, really young ones that are just purely on, raised on milk alone, it's an absolute uh, royal experience. And um, so, yeah, we put, we put that together with Jake and, and, um, and that's, yeah, we, he entered us into the, um, into the Delicious Awards that year and uh, sort of took us to another level. Um, you know, uh, uh, another stage uh, on, a, on a national level. But um, yeah, the opening of it and what they did with it at the start is just, um, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was definitely memorable. That's for sure.
1: How has uh, producing uh, pigs changed your life?
0: Oh, wow. Um, I guess reflecting on our, over the years, um, I guess, uh, you have to be very grateful, I guess, um, grateful for the opportunity that I've been able to to do this, um, to to bring my kids out, raise them in a manner that my family has continued to do. And I mean, out here we're not an abnormal thing. There are still there are still family farms owned by fifth generational um, uh, families still in op- in, uh, in continuity, selling it to the commercial market and doing it hard. And 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 so we're not uncommon story. Um, but yeah, we, you know, they are few. They're getting rarer, you know, fewer and far b- between. The, you know, the agricultural industries, you know, going down a mass consumer com- commercialisation path where you know how- economy of scale makes a big difference, and the small guys are slowly, slowly disappearing. And but um, yeah, you know, by 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 us sort of at least bypassing a couple, uh, uh, bypassing a couple of steps in the commercial chain by a must- by me going direct to my consumer, we're able to afford. Giving them an affordable product on par with what they are, and by taking out a couple of chains, it um, you know it, it makes us able to um, be free of the commercial fluctuations of the market. You know, like when when I produce a lot of pigs, so does everyone in the district, and the price is down. When I produce a lot of cows in the district, everyone else does, it goes down. When when the barley's good, the price goes down. You you put them through animals instead. You've got to make you've got to make choices. Um, uh, on the fly based on what's on the seasons and also based on 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 the market conditions and things and, and yeah by dealing direct with the customers um we sort of we can be, be free of a, a few of those fluctuations and um and and operate on a scale that's sort of um not normally afforded
1: you, you made a tree change even though your family has that rich heritage and grow and raising your family on the farm what do you love about what you do and this change and the impact that you've had on your family? I guess
0: it's, you know, to sound corny, it's for the children, you know. Um, I We both have attitudes that, you know, by growing your own food, at least you can be absolutely certain what's being put in your body and doesn't really worry me so much. I'm, you know, I'm old now, but I did want to be conscious of what my children had put in their body and, um, you know, a lot of modern agricultural techniques aren't in line with uh, you know my p- personal ethos. Um, you know, let alone the flavour aspect of it and stuff like that. But you know, um, I you know, look, I'm not. I, I like I said before to people, we're not you know, organo organic, you know, Nazi wankers or anything like that. I do appreciate that the box of tricks and tools that real fertilisers and real sprays actually afford but I don't like the prophylactic use of them in the commercial industry and um, I would like you know and with a little bit of handwork, um, you know you, you can actually you can actually you don't need those things but I do I do also appreciate that's not the way you've got to feed the world so I'm not you know we don't denigrate our industrial peers um, I, you know for a little while what we did it was a, a bit of a marketing platform and things like that when we were when we became a food service director um, you know, business. But um, I, yeah, I, le- I learned a while ago not to denigrate industrial peers because they're, like they're all tools in a box of tricks and it's all, you know, it's all about, um, it's all about management.
1: It's amazing advice. And we've been honored to have you today on the crackling to hear just a bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch and we'd love to catch up again soon.
0: Oh, it's very, very, um, you know, blessed that you had us on and it was nice to meet you. And um Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Appreciate it very much, mate.
1: This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstars. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.